This is Saving Grace, Living in the Light of God's Love, a broadcast ministry of Grace Center for Spiritual Development and Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world, committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. And now, our program. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's program. How do we determine from Scripture the correct view of the Millennial Kingdom, Christ's thousand-year reign on earth? What about the Mosaic Law? Is it applicable for Christians today? And can we know from Scripture what happens at the judgment seat of Christ? Is that for both believers and unbelievers? Is the judgment of works to determine salvation? What about the great white throne judgment? Perhaps all of these questions have crossed your mind. Well, today we want to supply sound biblical answers to give you assurance in your walk with Jesus. Here to help us is Grant Hawley, the executive director of the Free Grace Alliance and pastor of Bold Grace Fellowship in the Colony, Texas. Grant is the author of several books, including The Guts of Grace, Preparing Ordinary Saints for Extraordinary Ministry, Let the Text Speak, An Introduction to Biblical Hermeneutics, and the book we're discussing today, Dispensationalism and Free Grace, Intimately Linked. Others, and there's many others as well. Grant is a member of the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, and we're pleased to have him join us again on Saving Grace. Welcome back, Grant. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, so glad you could join us. You know, Grant, I always assume that many in our audience are laypersons like myself. You know, I so love the Lord, and I know they do too, and that's why they tune in each day, because they want to learn. They want to be students of the Word, which is what I consider myself to be for over 40 years. But only in the past 20 years have I grasped the simplicity of the gospel and free grace theology. So in keeping with the truth of Scripture's simplicity, I pray that our discussion will be easy for for all of our listeners today. So I think we should start with the title of your book, Dispensationalism and Free Grace. If you will, Grant, give us a definition of what you call normative dispensationalism. Yeah, thank you. There are quite a few different uh, views that uh, carry the name dispensationalism, and some of them are more of a traditional type of dispensationalism, and some of them are a little different. And so when I am trying to define normative dispensationalism, I'm trying to get at the core of kind of what traditional dispensationalism means. And uh, the basic idea has five points. And the first is that literal, historical, grammatical interpretation should be applied to all portions of Scripture. And, uh, you know, that seems like a mouthful, but really all it means is that you interpret it the way you would normally interpret something. You try to figure out what the author meant by what he wrote. And if you get that meaning, then you have the correct interpretation. The second is that the church and Israel are distinct peoples in God's program for the ages. And that just means that the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. And so when you look in the Bible, Israel are the descendants of Jacob, and um, the church is a new creation that was created in Christ after the after the cross and ascension, and after the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
And then the third point is that Christ will return bodily to earth and reign on David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And that's also called premillennialism. The the fourth point is that the underlying purpose of God's dealings with with mankind, with the earth and all that, is his glory. It's not just salvation. There's more to um, the, the subject of scripture than just salvation. And then the fifth point is that the Christian is free from the law in its entirety for both justification and sanctification. Praise the Lord for that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're going to get into these a little deeper as we, we talk today. But it's interesting to me, there are some theologians who have departed from dispensational views in key areas, and they disagree with free grace theology because both depend on principles of literal interpretation of God's word, as you talked about, with careful attention to historical context. Help us to understand why those two things would be areas of conflict conflict with our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. Yeah, so um, basically there's a paradigm shift that's needed. If you're used to approaching Scripture from a non-literal standpoint, and what I mean by that is that uh, certain things that you might uh, read in Scripture, you would um, turn into allegories when maybe the author didn't necessarily intend that. Um, you get used to reading scripture that way. And so you start to see things like uh, the kingdom, that term used, and you start to think, well, that means Jesus ruling in my heart um, and different things like that. And when you have that different approach to scripture, and especially the difference when you when you see all of scripture as related to how do you get saved. And if you're, if you're used to seeing every passage and saying and asking the question, okay, well, what does this tell me about how I need to be, what I need to do to be saved? You're going to get a little bit of a different viewpoint than if you come to the point to the scripture and say, what does this passage mean in its context? And uh, you don't assume that it's about salvation because there are a lot of passages that tell us about uh, the need to do good works and and different uh, benefits and and consequences depending on what we do with our lives. But if we don't assume that that is about um, whether or not we're saved, then you have a different uh, perspective on that than if you do assume that it's about how do you how do you get saved? Yes. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, in your book, uh, uh, you well earlier we, we talked about the five points that you define in that first one. Dispensationalists believe a literal historical grammatical interpretation should be applied. You mentioned that all other points flow from consistent literal interpretation. So with that in mind, the second point that you mentioned, the church and Israel are distinct peoples in God's program for the ages. How does this align with free grace and in contrast with, with the opposing view? Yeah, so the biggest way I think that that affects our view about uh, free grace is that if we um, assume that when God made promises to Israel, and then we say um, that he's not necessarily going to keep his promises to Israel, but instead we're going to, they're going to be allegorically fulfilled 
for the church. Um, there's a question about really what does it take on our part to uh, get God to keep his promises? And the basic idea that a dispensationalist understands is that God is faithful to all of his promises to Israel, even though Israel was disobedient and even came to the point of rejecting Christ in his first coming. Uh, so we know that God is going to keep his promises. He's going to restore Israel. And because we see his faithfulness to Israel, we can also know that he's going to be faithful to us and keep his promises, even when we're unfaithful. Yes, yes. And it's so important uh, to, to recognize that he is so faithful that is, uh, Israel will have their promises fulfilled just just like God said that he would in his word. And uh, certainly during the millennial kingdom, we'll see blessings upon Israel at that time. Be a beautiful, beautiful picture for, for Israelites. Well, the third point is the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily to earth and reign on David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Well, again, let's explain the, the differing views uh, and then how that aligns with free grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of different views about the kingdom. Uh, one very popular view is called amillennialism. And what it means is that there isn't really going to be a literal return of Christ to earth to rule um, in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And uh, that view is very popular. And um, another popular view is the uh, view called postmillennialism. And that's the idea that the church is supposed to establish the kingdom and that Christ will come back at the end of it. Now, um, those, those two views have a little bit of a different impact on soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, depending on which one you hold. If you hold the um, doctrine of um, amillennialism, then uh, one of the effects of that is that, that there are two judgments in Scripture that are talked about. One occurs before the millennium, and it's a judgment of believers that is for determining rewards. And then there's another judgment that's after the millennium, which is the great white throne judgment, and that's uh, where unbelievers stand before God um, to give an account for their lives, to try to make the case that they earn salvation. And, you know, we understand that nobody, nobody does earn salvation. And so at the, at the judgment seat of Christ or the, the Bama seat, this is that judgment before the millennium, all believers who stand before that judgment are already secure in their salvation. But then um, this other judgment is a judgment that does have to do with people's eternal, eternal destiny. And if you get rid of the millennium, it's really hard to keep those judgments distinct. And then on top of that, um, with post-millennialism, it's a little bit different because um, the uh, a lot of the talk about the the kind of character that's going to be present during the kingdom is assumed to be you have to be this if you're really saved. And so that's that's another thing that that um, affects the way um, people interpret scripture relative to salvation. And then postmillennialism also has that same problem with the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think it, it it's, has such an impact uh, on the way that people live. Uh, if they are striving day in and day out to earn acceptance from Christ, uh, not understanding that it's because of Christ that they are accepted, uh, they they will uh, continue to 
have on their minds this fear that they haven't done enough uh, when they stand before him. And I, I'm sure as a pastor, you find that often in in uh, the people in your congregation or those who uh, you're talking to for the first time. Uh, I see it all the time in speaking with women's groups that lack of assurance is the number one issue in their hearts and minds. But it's from that tradition of believing, well, yes, we believe in faith alone, Christ alone, but... Uh, you know, you have to live to prove uh, that that you are indeed saved. And so it's adding that works after salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times people aren't necessarily adding works to say you have to do these to be saved. But what they're doing is adding works to say you have to do this to know you're saved. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, but when yeah. you do that, it's so damaging because if you think about it just as as a, as an illustration of the family, if if you tell your kids that um, they may not be secure in your household and, or as members of your family, if they don't behave a certain way, um, that is going to create all kinds of anxiety. And it's, it's actually going to cause more behavior problems than if they know that they're secure in love no matter what. No doubt about it. No doubt. Good, good analogy. The underlying purpose of God's dealings with the world is his glory, not merely the salvation of man. Thus, the scripture goes far beyond evangelism. This is your fourth point, and one that I see is most critical for understanding our walk here and now. Uh, Let's talk about that a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's probably the most important as well. And and the reason is because, you know, most of Scripture is written to people who are already believers. Um, in the New Testament, it's every book but John. And that's the only one that's, that's written to an unbelieving audience is the Gospel of John. And so um, as you read through all these different uh, books in the New Testament, they, they often start with something like to the saints in Colossae or to the saints in Ephesus or etc. And throughout the letters, there's there's this word, um, you know, brothers that comes up over and over again. And and people people say things or the authors say things like don't hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with an air of partiality. And just there are all these different statements that reaffirm that the audience is an audience of believers. And so we can understand that when we read the New Testament, unless we're in the Gospel of John, that the people who are receiving these messages are people who are already secure in their salvation because they've already believed in Jesus Christ. And um, if you do that, it becomes a lot easier to to make these distinctions that the biblical authors are making, like um, the distinction between salvation and discipleship, the distinction between uh, the gift and the prize, that one's really important. Uh, we understand that salvation is a gift, but rewards are a prize. And, you know, a prize um, is given for effort. Okay. Uh, we don't, we don't win a prize um, just by uh, showing up. We win a prize by effort. Um, another way to put it is uh, reward. The Bible calls, calls this um, reward. And actually the word in the Greek means something like, uh, like wages um, or payment for work done. And so if we, if we, don't 
come to the come to scripture with the assumption that well this is just telling me how to get saved whether we're reading about discipleship or rewards or whatever then uh, we're really gonna, going to uh, do a better job of uh, what's called exegesis which is where we take the meaning out of the text rather than assume a meaning that may or may not be there and that's really important for trying to have a clear understanding of uh, these distinctions that help us to be secure in our salvation and understand that um, that God does love us no matter what. But there is a, a place for works in our lives. There's a there's a place. There's um, there's a, there's rewards to be earned. There's discipleship to participate in. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that we need to encourage, and there are people people around us, our our neighbors who who need our good works. And so there's a place for it, but we can keep that distinct if we don't assume that everything in Scripture is about how to get saved. Exactly, and I I love this the the point that you make about. Uh, you know, bringing, bringing the Lord glory. Uh, some people would say, would be critical of the idea of working for reward, uh, saying, well, you know, you're already going to heaven. You know, that, that seems a bit much to, to also expect reward. Uh, I think it was uh, Joe Wall that, uh, that, that said, but actually the reward is to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Uh, the fact that you chose to serve him here, the fact that you chose to uh, put all of your 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 gifts and your talents to be a good steward of what he gave you is an honor and glory to the Lord. Uh, I love that because it takes away that selfish idea of I want a reward, but truly it's a reward that that brings honor to the Lord. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was a, a beautiful way of looking at it as well. Amen. The last one, right, and most important point for assurance, which we touched on earlier, the Christian is free from the law in its entirety for both justification and sanctification. Uh, and again, contrasts with the dispensation, non-dispensationalist view. Yeah, so uh, that's something where you're going to have a big spectrum of different views. Um, one of those that you see um, that's pretty common is is that non-dispensationalists often will divide the law into three different um, groupings. And the first grouping is like the moral law. The second grouping is the ceremonial law. And the third would be the civil law. And if you if you do that, you can say um, there's some some of them will say that well, it's the ceremonial or the the civil aspects of the law that are done away in Christ. Um, it's not necessarily the moral aspects, and it gets a little tricky because we have something um, inside us that says, well, we need we need rules or we're not going to behave. Uh, we like to we like to feel like uh, we have these um, these boundaries that that really keep us locked in, and it's it's really um, seems kind of loosey goosey to say, well, uh, the only thing we're really called to do is to trust in Christ and to love one another, and that that doesn't seem like enough sometimes. So we try to try to add to it. But uh, when we when we look at how the, the scripture defines the law, it doesn't give room for us to separate it out into different categories. Um, for example, um, in James 2.10, 2, it says if, if anyone stumbles at one point in the law, uh, he's guilty of the whole law. 
And so, uh, so that's really interesting. And, and of course we do have some passages that, that talk about some of these ceremonial aspects being, being, uh, um, done away, uh, for example, um, with, with Peter, with the, with the vision that he had with the Lord brought down that he brought down the sheet full of all the, the foods that were forbidden under the law and said, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And so um, that's one example. But some of the passages that talk about our freedom from the law aren't talking about ceremonial aspects. For example, um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about specifically our freedom from the law that says you shall not covet. And that's, that's moral if it's anything. Um, it's certainly not ceremonial or civil. And so, um, but what the point he was making in that passage is that when the law said you shall not covet, it actually um, gave occasion for sin inside his heart to produce coveting. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that he could find himself obeying what the law actually requires, that righteousness that the law is looking for, is actually to be free from it. And it's it's really interesting how that works in our hearts, but uh, we do have something inside us that when when there's a, a law, we um, we tend to react badly to it. But when we're pursuing the Lord by faith, and when we are um, thinking about His love for us and His love for our neighbors, and uh, thinking about all the different opportunities to to serve our our loved ones, um, and not just not just uh, the people who are close to us, but also our neighbors and our our fellow church members and and all of those sort of things it it drives us to obedience and when we're when we're doing that and we're focused on uh, what the Lord is doing in and through us then uh, we don't necessarily have that same draw to uh, you know start you know desiring whatever our neighbor has we're thinking about how can we help them and so uh freedom from law is actually really important for sanctification but um if we don't understand and from the law for our justification then we're really in trouble because all of us fall short of the law and uh we could never ever have any kind of assurance or nor could we ever even be saved if we had to keep the law to be saved Absolutely. And I love it that Christ said in Matthew, you know, if if you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, uh, that fulfills uh, uh, all the law, because you're you're not going to uh, even, even if you're just looking at the Ten Commandments, you're not going to, uh, you know, kill and 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 lie and do the things that that you would if you you know when you love the lord you're just not you're you're going to be more prone to to be obedient to his word uh but yes i think that's a, such an important one that to know that we have that freedom but we have a desire to serve the lord and to obey him in all that we do because of what he's done for us and it uh really is life-changing when you have that freedom from the law mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well in our in our closing time uh we have a few moments here. Uh, what would your gracious challenge be to pastors who are tuning in today? And I know we have a lot of pastors in our audience who maybe have not considered free grace theology, maybe do not agree with the points, the five points we talked about today. Uh, how would you address those pastors today? Yeah, so I... Um... 
I wasn't always free grace. I um, held to something like uh, Lordship Salvation, but I maybe wasn't super clear on it. I guess I was probably more inconsistent than anything. I I might say I was free grace at one moment, and or excuse me, that's not that's not what I meant to say. I might say um, that salvation is by grace through faith in one moment, and then at the next moment, um, say, well, you have to do these things in order to to uh, be saved or to be sure you're saved. And I found that uh, it produced in me something that um, what wasn't great because there's a there is a um, a tendency for us when we fall short to start to compare ourselves with others. And as I was doing that, I I, um, I realized that you know I wasn't meeting my own standard, or certainly not not God's standard. Um, and when I when I saw that, I would think, well, but I'm better than that guy. And so um, I don't know if that necessarily happens to everybody, but it's what was happening to me, and I, I just don't think it was it was helpful to. Uh, to my own uh, walk with the Lord. And I know that we, we all desire, every pastor out there desires his church to walk faithfully. Um, but my, my encouragement would, would be to, to maybe take a fresh look at some of these things because um, I've found that uh, not only in myself, but in, in others that have, you know, maybe been part of our church or uh, we've had a chance to, to talk to or, or or other free grace communities and uh, the people that go uh, to other churches that teach, teach this doctrine that there's, there's actually a really refreshing and, um, and a motivating factor to free grace theology. And that I don't find that people are taking grace lightly when they um, approach the scripture from this point of view. In fact, I think that um, it really drives people to obedience and since we all do really care about that, we we really um, we really do as pastors. We we want people to walk with the Lord faithfully. Uh, there's there's um, there's an opportunity there for for your church, uh, just like there was for mine and for my own life to have a a, a fresh um, a, a fresh uh, fire of um, desire to please the Lord uh, come in. And I think that a lot of times folks um, reject both dispensationalism and free grace uh, because of misunderstandings. And uh, sometimes people might think that, uh, you know, dispensationalists are just want to look at the news and figure out how it can uh, relate to whatever prophecy, but that doesn't really have anything to do with dispensationalism. And then sometimes people think that free grace means that people don't want to obey the Lord. And that's certainly not true. That's certainly not true. mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I appreciate those words so much. And uh, same with my husband and I. We we uh, only discovered free grace about 20 years ago, but it was totally life-changing. And uh, we just hope that all, that all of our friends and family and those that we are acquainted with would, would like you said, just take a look. Just look at the what the word says. Don't depend on the commentary to explain to you what the word says. Learn for yourself with the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you, Grant Holly, for your excellent insight of the scripture today. Uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. We have put information about Grant, his books, and Free Grace Alliance on our Saving Grace program page at gsot.edu. Uh, that's gsot.edu. 
You can also download our Grace app. And while there, check out the opportunities offered here at Grace School of Theology for seminary degrees and our Grace Center for Spiritual Development for Bible studies and other resources to deepen your faith and your knowledge and your love for the Lord Jesus. We pray that all would come to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus uh, Christ. And if you've not done so, we pray that will be a decision that you make today. Please tell others about saving grace. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You've been listening to Saving Grace. For more information about Grace Center for Spiritual Development or this program, visit our website at gsot.edu center or download the Grace app through your smartphone. Views expressed on this program may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.